0: I'm Jessica Duanyes, and this is Bottomless to Sober, the podcast where I talk about anything and everything related to life since my transition from bottomless drinking to a sober life. Hey, everyone. On today's episode, I have a guest. I have Dana White. Guerreri, and she is the owner of the Yarn Consolery LLC. And really for today, we're just going to have a candid conversation. Um, Dana's got some questions for me, actually, and we figured why not go ahead and have an opportunity to sit, chat. I can answer questions about sobriety and life in general, and then we'll go ahead and make it into an episode. So hey, Dana, so nice to have you. Hi, thank you so much
1: for having me. I think I told you I found you um, or saw you on the Sober Summit With Maggie. And I was drawn to you. I think I've told you this. I was drawn to you just because you were so forthright. You had a no BS attitude. And the thing that really struck me is you didn't really sugarcoat forgiveness and the need for forgiving others to, you know, kind of bring your sobriety to the forefront. So that's a lot of what I wanted to talk to you about. I know you've talked about forgiving yourself, uh, but I love your stance on kind of how do we forgive others or is it necessary or kind of moving on from the past to really live a life of recovery.
0: Yeah, I, I love that you bring that up because I would say that definitely my stance on forgiveness it's, I definitely am not a forgive and forget type of person, right? Mm -hmm. And when, what I mean by that is that I will not continue to put energy into something that caused me pain that another person did to me. However, um, I'm going to absolutely make the decision if I choose to, to go no contact with that person. And uh, an example of that would be, I have a brother um, on my mother's side I mean, he's probably about 17 years my senior. And so we did not have the opportunity to grow up together. So, you know, by the time I was born, I think he was on his way out to the military. And um, so we just never were together. Um, But what I did find was that he was placing these expectations on me for how I should be as a sister. Mm. And because, again, he's 17 years older than me, I kind of just automatically throughout my life assumed that whatever he was expecting was the right thing for him to expect and then you know later on him and his wife and it took me getting sober and getting clarity of mind that I didn't want to be told how to show up for another person mm. Um, for me to finally be like you know what I'm going to just end this com- end this entire relationship and so you know like my mother's aware my siblings are aware that I I've made the decision to go no contact with him and I realized that I just didn't want to be told how to show up for other people like I really wanted to determine that myself so I guess
1: my question for you there is how do you handle almost the peer pressure of uh, what do they call them? The flying monkeys, right? The people that are sent, you know, f- other family members that are sent to tell you to forgive, um, you know, that it, or if we don't forgive someone else, it's like drinking poison and wishing, you know, someone else to die. How do you, how do you kind of come in, come to peace more so with, holding your ground, not giving in to kind of the peer family peer pressure to forgive someone because that's just how they are, or, you know, that was 10 years ago, or they're they've changed now. How do you kind of get your mind around that?
0: That's a great question. So I've got to say, I'm pretty fortunate in that my family, there's many of us who are siblings and nobody has pressured me to maintain a relationship with him. And I think that at the end of the day, everyone knows how bad things got for me in terms of my drinking. And if this is what's working for me and my sobriety, I think it's pretty clear. We're not questioning whatever's keeping Jessica sober. And if she's making this decision to keep herself sober, then it is what it is. Um, Other things that I am mindful of, you know, I, I do my best to say not complicate family situations, so since my decision to go no contact with him, I've, I've only had to see him one time. And it was very simple. I was very cordial. You know, I saw him and his wife and I said, hey, how are you? And that was it. And I just went to another part of the, the room. It was like a family get together. And I just... Did not engage with them, so I I had to be in the same space. My mom was there. I had not seen my mother in over a year, so it was an opportunity to see my mother as well. Um, But I just pretty simply I said hello, and then I kept it going. You know, I wasn't going to get into an argument. I, if they had approached me with any type of conversation about the past, I was not going to have that conversation, and I still won't because I'm pretty firm in my decision. You know, when we make certain decisions, right? it really helps us to look at our future self. And so if me in 70 years, or maybe not I don't know that I'd be around in 70 years. If I'm when I'm 70 or when I'm 80, would I look back at this decision and regret it? Mm -hmm. And my 80 year old version does not. My 80 year old version is firmly okay with still being no contact with this individual. And so that's what I use to kind of anchor myself in a decision that can be a tough decision. Absolutely. Um, But I know that future me, won't regret it. And, you know, and I've I've run the gambit of possible scenarios, right? Because when we decide to go no contact with the family member, you know, we're essentially saying that if one day we needed help, we are letting ourselves know that that person is not an option for help, right? I'm giving myself permission to understand that I'm cutting off a possible source of help in the future. Mm -hmm. And I'm okay with that because I'm that resolute with my decision. And I love I love that
1: because that was one of the major things that resonated with me, as you said, you know, a lot of people this day and age are talking about inner child, this inner child that, you know, work with our past selves. But you said, really, you know, looking forward to that older person, what am I doing to ensure that they have a good life? And I guess that kind of leads me to wonder, this, this might be you know more of an existentialist question, but how do you know if someone's changed? I mean, maybe their, maybe their words have said they've changed, but even if their actions are changed, like how many chances do you give someone, right? Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. Or, you know, I don't want people to hold me to all the, you know, horrid things I did when I was using, you know, so I want to, you know, I want people to forgive me, of course, hand over fist, but I have a hard time forgiving others. And so how do you, you know, how do you kind of determine when you give a second chance, third chance, or if they've changed, or is that more of like a gut feeling for you? Are you more logical or?
0: I think I've definitely become more logical. I think the more sober I am, the more logical I get. And so I think everyone ultimately has to make that decision for themselves, right? When I'm working with a client one-on-one, I'm never going to tell someone you need to let this go versus you need to like, hold on to this, etc. But what I ask myself or would ask another person is, are you okay with this happening again to you, Mm. right? So because again, someone can change and we're people and humans backtrack sometimes, right? It's human nature to be imperfect. So are you okay with whatever that imperfection was to happen to you again? If you are, by all means, like let this person back in your life, right? If you know fully well that you can handle whatever disappointment it was that this person brought to you. However, if you know that, your nervous system could barely tolerate that event and you know that it's just something you wouldn't want to deal with ever again, then this is where you let that person change and evolve and show someone else how great they are now, right? Like you don't have to be the recipient of this person's new version of themselves. They can absolutely be their new self and give that to someone else, right? Whether it's a romantic mm-hmm. relationship, a family member, a friend, um, you it's totally up to you. But i that's kind of like my question that I used to measure that. Am I okay with this happening again? If I can handle it happening again, sure. Let them back in. If not, they can go exist somewhere else.
1: So what do you think of the phrase, you know, if someone shows you who they are, believe them?
0: I think that it's, it's a great phrase and I think it's a very true and spot on Right. And I think that a lot of times we we want to see the good in other people. Right. And sometimes we have those rose colored glasses and sometimes we're attracted to red flags. Right. Like sometimes somebody who screams drama and chaos seems reassuring to us because that's all we've ever known. Exactly. However, I do think that, yeah, like when someone shows you by their actions, what they mean, what their intentions are with you, if you choose to ignore it again, don't be surprised when the following things happen that, you know, perfectly align with exactly what they showed you. Um, And then again, you, you can make that decision. Do you want this to continue? Yes or no. And if you don't, then you have to make a decision in terms of keeping this person in your life or not. So
1: this, if I, and if I start to go too far out there, you know, bring me back down, but what about your idea on almost like ancestral wounds? You know, do we pay the price this, you know, as children of, you know, parents or, you know, grandparents or great grandparents who had issues in the past, do we, you think we pay the price for them? Or, I mean, maybe that's a car- karma kind of question, you know, Um, and maybe that's, you know, the trauma factor. How do we move on from those kind of ancestral wounds?
0: Yeah, I mean, I would say, I don't know that I would say that it's karmic in that we automatically, like, it's something like a a debt to pay, right? Like that it's a tit for tat sort of thing, like our parents did this, so now we deal with this. But what I do think happens is that these are learned behaviors, right? So if our grandparents went through something They learned how to survive it a certain way, whatever, whether it was some sort of system of oppression at the time, any specific type of laws, any specific, you know, depending on their identity and where they lived. Right. Like it could have been a straight up like surviving genocide, whatever the case may be. Right. That definitely imprints itself on folks. And if anyone researches, say, epigenetics, we do understand that we do carry the trauma of those before us. At the same time, we, with like tools that we have, you know, we're definitely, and as a generation, like anybody who is alive right now in 2024, um, what we're very fortunate for is that there are a lot of resources and there is a lot of understanding and there are a lot of conversations about personal development and taking care of yourself. Because I think, for example, my mother's generation, they never would have had conversations about like reflecting on your behaviors and thinking about where your emotions are coming from and what your emotions mean and how something that happened to your ancestor may be impacting you today right so my mom really didn't have a lot of tools to help her with her excuse me with her behavior so to speak and her mindset and her thoughts and her emotions i on the other hand can go online you know there's tons of resources online there's tons of books to read there's lots of safe spaces that are being created to facilitate these conversations about our emotions our state of well-being the things we've gone through so that we can actually empower ourselves to break the the learned behaviors that the people before us had to use to survive so we don't have to operate in the exact same manner
1: so do you think where do you stand on feeling as though you almost need to go back and educate people who have wronged you like maybe your brother you know or your mother, or, you know, whoever we have in our life that, you know, isn't as elevated or have that, you know, consciousness that we have now, do you feel, I mean, not that it's our job to to teach them, you know, I don't need to teach a grown, grown ass woman how to behave, you know, but at the same extent, how do we kind of educate others? Or is it kind of like, hey, that's you, you've done your thing, and I educate going forward to like my children?
0: Yeah. I mean, I I don't. It's not my place. You know, if my brother were to ever be curious and want to have a conversation about it, we can have the conversation about it. But, you know, everyone is walking through life through their own lens and their own perspective. So I'm sure he thinks I've done a million things wrong. Right. And it's not my job to convince him that you know, his perspective is one way and my perspective is another. Mm-hmm. I just know in my reality, I did not want to be told how to show up in this relationship. And so I removed myself from the relationship. So that way there was no more drama about being told that I'm doing the right or wrong thing. Mm-hmm. You know, whatever he thinks is going to be whatever he thinks. Um, All I can do is just show up authentically. And then, yeah, Um, in terms of educate right there's opportunities conversations just like on this podcast that anybody can sit and listen and kind of have opportunities to reflect um when i'm facilitating meetings right um i work with the luckiest club i previously worked also with the reframe app you know when i'm having conversations with people in recovery who are reflecting on their own journeys right these are the opportunities that i have to kind of share my perspective on say, forgiveness and interacting with other people who have hurt us or choosing not to interact with other people who have hurt us. And then if I were to have a kid, of course, you know, I would definitely pass this on to my children, right? And give them the option of knowing that they don't have to be forced into any relationship that they don't want to be in, you know? Um, But yeah, I don't, I don't believe that it's my job to go teach other adults how to, how to live and how to think and how to act. I
1: love that. Well, I'm, I'm making all these notes over here as you're telling me this. I'm like, note to self. What about, and then maybe this is switching gears a little bit. How are you, uh, when you're working with a client, how do you work on like the forgiveness of self? So maybe we can forgive people because they did the best with what they had at the time, or, you know, that's all they knew. Like you said, your mother wasn't equipped. She didn't have the tools you have. That's, she did the best she could. How do you kind of decide how to forgive yourself. You know, I I can be hard, you know, hard nailed to not forgive her. I have a I have a brother too that I have some strained relations with, you know, I can I can definitely keep distance between us. But how do you kind of determine, you know, forgiveness in yourself? How do you how do you work with that?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. So when I work with clients one-on-one, you know, first it's kind of like defining just some basic terms, right? And it's like, I feel like the big one is what is guilt versus what is shame, Mm. right? And I think Brené Brown does a really great job of explaining that. Like, I think she says something along the lines of shame is a focus on ourselves, right? That Mm. we think we are bad and we think we are not worthy because of whatever it is that we did that we regret having done versus guilt that's not personal to ourselves. we can feel guilt for having done something that is wrong quote unquote. Um, but even then diving in deeper, like let's say if someone is feeling guilt right and they're they're like, well, I feel bad about having done something wrong, then the question goes deeper into well, what do you define as right or wrong because you know for ages, you know, society will say something is right or wrong that is actually wrong, but then it's legal, right? Like segregation was totally legal, but we know it's wrong, right? And so when folks are managing guilt and shame towards themselves, it's like we have to kind of peel back the layers and go back to what do you believe is right or wrong for you, right? Because when you are feeling guilt about something, First i want to make sure that the person is feeling guilt about something that actually is out of alignment with their values and then that's fair like okay if you if you feel guilty because you took money from your mother to you know go buy alcohol right like you pickpocketed your mom or whatever and it is not in your values to take other people's belongings then absolutely that makes sense that you should be feeling guilt for that right and so now let's go to let's let's peel back those layers but some people feel guilt or shame over say their body size, right? Like their their body is not a small body and then they're feeling guilt and shame about their weight. And it's like, okay, where did you learn that there was something wrong with your your weight? Is this actually in your true value system or is this something that was adopted and absorbed from outside sources? Mm. So we have those conversations to really determine if you are feeling badly because of something that you actually did wrong according to what is your internal measure of right or wrong, or if it comes from an outside source. So once we know if it's coming from an outside source, then it's like, all right, let's tap into what do you really believe? And usually coming into what someone actually believes is right or wrong can help a lot. It doesn't happen overnight because nothing ever happens overnight. But just recognizing that if you start to feel bad because you're a couple extra pounds higher than what you think you quote unquote should be, examining where that belief comes from can really help alleviate some of that emotional, like discomfort that you feel when you like step on a scale, because you're like, Oh wait, I'm, I'm worried about that because this is something that I was taught, but I don't really like for me, there's nothing actually wrong with being the body in the body that I am in today. So that's a lot of the work that I would do in terms of like the self, the self forgiveness piece. Right. And then I think also it really helps like providing clients with resources in terms of like connecting what your feelings are telling us so for example like when they are experiencing you know shame again Brene brown is a great resource on like shame and shame resilience and really that when we're feeling shame about something the greatest way to break down shame is to actually talk about it right mm-hmm. and then the question is well where do we talk about these things again when it's specific to alcohol abuse right especially with alcohol addiction you know, where can you talk about your drinking so that you feel safe and you feel seen? So typically it'll be, I'll refer people to different communities where they can go in a meeting and share, right? I mean, talking to like a coach helps, um, but maybe they're not ready to put it on their social media. Totally fair. Not, not That's not a requirement, but you've got to talk to someone about it. So who are you going to talk to about it where you can be safe and not experience like massive consequences for talking about whatever you're ashamed of? So, things like that are really how we target, say, self-forgiveness work. I love it. Um so what about you're you're saying have someone speak
1: to other people about it. Definitely working with a coach. But what would you say about as far as someone uh, the difference between speaking to like a therapist or a psychologist versus a community? You know, they, because I, I work with a lot of people and they say well I, well I have a you know I already have a therapist I'm good I don't need to go to meetings and so I, I think maybe differentiating between the two a therapist is good a coach is good but what makes having a community so much more impactful than just you know going to your therapist um, I mean you pay them to listen to you technically right so that maybe that's a bias there and maybe they don't have what you have. You know, maybe they're not an addict, um, so maybe there's a difference there. A coach, again, maybe there's a hierarchy. What does the community aspect do, or, or how could you even convince, not convince, but how could you encourage someone to go to a group and share? Because that's a hard thing to do.
0: Yeah, it, it, it excuse me, this cough. It really is a hard thing to do, to show up in a community and tell all these people, right, like, that you have been struggling the way that I get folks to go is just that reminder that their their shame is fueled by their isolation. And mm-hmm. I basically break down the fact that if you are struggling with an addiction, we talk about it. How are you drinking? Most of the time, most of my clients are drinking in secret. They might drink a little bit socially, and then they wait to come home and drink more. They wait till their kids go to bed, and then they drink, right? They wait till their kids go to school, and then they drink. Like, there's always this part that's hidden, and what I let them know is that they deserve to be seen. Mm. And the best place to be seen is in a community where you have peers who are going through the exact same thing as you. <laughs> because, for example, all right, let me slow my breath down. Okay. For anybody who's listening, I've had this weird cough and it's just been really annoying and life goes on, but... um. Because here's the thing. When when you're working one-on-one with someone, again, you made a reference to the hierarchy. You have the therapist, you have the coach. And even if the coach is still someone in recovery, the point is there is this implied hierarchy in that dynamic between the person providing the service and the person paying for the service. As opposed to when you go into a community, everyone is equal and you don't have to feel like you're less than or more than or anything because you're literally on the same playing field. Even if you and your coach have like the exact same amount of sobriety, there's just still this dynamic between the provider, the service provider, and the person receiving the service that is done away with in a community setting. So what if you're in a community
1: and you know, you've only had, you've only stacked a couple, you know, a couple days, a couple weeks, and you go to a community meeting and everybody there is, you know, long timers. You know, they've all had years or a couple months, or how how do you kind of I'm I'm having a hard time thinking of the word, but how do you kind of come to terms with, you know, and I and I, I wrote down shame is fueled by isolation. How do you not compare yourself? to other people that are in recovery.
0: I mean, we we're humans, we're always going to compare ourselves to other people. The question is what do we do with that comparison, right? Do we walk into the space and compare ourselves and then think badly of ourselves and think that we're not good enough and we're never going to get there or can we use this comparison to fuel motivation? So we walk mm-hmm. into a space and we see folks who have been exactly where I am today and see them doing the damn thing for like months or years and say, okay, there is an opportunity for me to maybe get to where some of these folks are at. And, you know, my the ideal would be that in a community space, if they don't have like newcomers meetings, that the people with the experience are welcoming and, you know, you know, like ushering people in and excited to see these brand new fresh faces when they're appearing. So that somebody who is coming in with like a day sober feels welcome and feels safe in that space.
1: And do you almost think, and sometimes I feel this way, you know, I'm coming up on um four days. I'll be three years um sober from alcohol. I'm about um, gosh, three and three, three years in a month from cocaine and two years in March from marijuana. And I almost like to be around people who are new, new quote unquote, to sobriety. Maybe they've been having a go at it for some time, but it kind of, you know, the fire in their bellies are there. You know, they're they've got more in invested. Whereas kind of, you know, I think as you get along, you can kind of have the fuck it button is kind of lingering, you know, you're thinking, and then you kind of get into that, you know, can I moderate you maybe I'm cured now. I mean, I know I'm never cured. And I can never go back. But you know, that addict voice sometimes pops up and says, Oh, come on, D, like, you're you're cool. Now just have one or you know, you get around those, the family members or peers that say, Oh, you're you're fine now. Geez, baby, you could probably just have one or, you know, maybe just have a puff, you know, and you'll be cool. And so I almost was curious if you thought that maybe it is good for old timers to be, and not that I'm an old timer. I mean, three years is not much in the span of how long I was using, yeah. but to be around people who are, who are starting out because they are ready to go. They have a lot to teach us too.
0: Yeah. I mean, you know, I will always say that the newcomer is absolutely, everybody's important in a community but your new folks are are golden because especially for folks with time under their belts, the, the new person reminds you of exactly what it was like in the beginning, right? Mm. And it can be that very powerful reminder that we might need to be like, you know what, Let, let's stay put. Let's not have that one. Right. Because a lot of times the newcomer comes in and there's a lot going on. Right. You typically don't walk into recovery on like a winning streak. It's usually because something really rough happened that you're right. like, Holy shit, I've got to stop. Right. So when that person gets to the holy shit, I've got to stop point and they're walking into a meeting or logging onto a meeting, whether it's online or in person, you know, they have so much to offer because just their experience on that day one. Is so important to remind everyone else of how how beautiful it is to come from that. You know, to push off from that point.
1: I'm I'm making notes. I'm just I'm going feverishly over here, like, woo, loving this. this. Is some speaking about golden? What is talking? Kind of jumping back to shame. Do you think if you're a person who drinks, um, kind of like you said, it's ice. Shame is fueled by I- isolation. That you need to get that on a shirt. Like that could be your like theme theme. <laughs> mantra. Um, I've never heard anybody say that before. And I almost was, I'm curious, if you think that people who kind of drink in private, it's harder for them to seek help. Maybe because they haven't hit a rock bottom, quote unquote, whereas like the hardcore partier, if they get DUIs, they go to rehab, you know, bad, they almost die, they want to take their lives. Maybe that's like a, an imposed bottom. Whereas if you're drinking in private and nobody really knows, you've got to determine when you go for help.
0: Yeah. I mean, I would say that was definitely my experience, right? Like I was so outwardly successful in drinking so much in secret. I didn't want anyone to know my secret, not even my doctor who was like sworn to secrecy because of HIPAA, right? Like even that wasn't good enough for me. And so I would go to my regular doctor and lie about my alcohol consumption until the one time that my blood work came back and it was glaringly obvious that I had been drinking because I had alcoholic liver disease. I couldn't hide it anymore. But, you know, before that point, I never wanted to open up because I didn't want anyone to know that side of me. Yeah. And I wonder
1: if, and and that's a lot of the the people that I see now in different groups um, that they really, nobody knows and they just want somebody to see it. They just want somebody to pick up on it and go, hey, do you need help? And I think that, I mean, in theory, I would hope that it's getting easier in today's society. You know, you can follow people on Insta. Like you said, there's tons of groups to go to, but making that first step and we talked about, you know, going to a group and really talking about how they, people can be seen. And another great one you said was um, comparison really fuels that motivation. How would you get somebody, you know, maybe they're Googling, am I an alcoholic? Maybe they're starting to see, you know, these kind of red flags coming up. How do you get how do you encourage someone to make the leap to get help?
0: Yeah, it, it's so tricky because when someone is in that situation of doing everything in secret, they almost they want to recover in secret, too. Right. Mm. Like because, you know, it's almost like, well, you want to treat your recovery the same way that you were about your alcohol. Right. But if in this case, if you were very secretive about your alcohol, it's like, well, how can you ease this person in right. to a recovery space so that they can feel safe and they can feel anonymous? And so. And- and like you
1: said, if they're super successful and they're everything, looks great and wonderful on the outside and they don't want anybody to know. So and, and almost think, you know, I, I can do everything else. Like I'm a hardcore independent woman. Like nobody's going to help me. I've got this, you know, Um, and so maybe it would. How, and i sorry i cut you off but that was i was thinking of you saying like i'm a successful woman like this is how you know i've got i've got this almost a facade of how great i've got it handled how do you know how do you re- how do you know and then how do you reach out
0: Yeah. I mean, I think like for the person who is drinking in secret, you know, if the first thing is needing to ease into a space, you know, I would say an online community is going to absolutely be like your best bet to start because you can go on there. When you sign into Zoom, you don't even have to use your full name. Right. You can turn your camera off and then slowly start to build that trust with the community space. And as you build that trust, then maybe one day you can challenge yourself and turn your camera on, right? Or maybe you can challenge yourself and use your voice and maybe keep your camera off. But Mm. I think like that's going to be, the best way for someone who is so attached to the secret life of drinking to transition into a recovery space where there can be in community and start to see that they're not the only one. Because as soon as they were to share that, hey, I'm so-and-so and I drink in secret, I am would be confident that like half the room would say, oh, yeah, that was me too, right? Right, right. Right.
1: And even if you're not the person who drinks in secret, eventually, even if you're a hardcore party or a hardcore user, you start doing things in secret, you know, eventually it starts to get to a point where you're, you know, pulling the wool over eyes at some point, Yeah, you know, and even I was, I was pretty much out there, but when my family would go to bed, I would, I would continue, you know, yeah. so although I was, I was not hiding anything per se, I did, you know, after, after the sun went down, you know, yeah. um, Gosh, I know we're coming up on time. Um, I guess there there is one other question that I had for you. And so we're going to we're going to kind of encourage people to get into a, a meeting, get into how do we find meetings and groups? If yeah. I'm not really in the, I mean, in the community, I can find, I know everybody, right? I and mean, we all know everybody. We think we know. We go to the Sober Summit. How do you find somebody if you don't want to go to AA because you might go in there and somebody would recognize you? Right. Or, you know, Bill sees you. Not I hate to use Bill because that's right, the AA thing. But you're walking down the street and they see you go in. Um, how do you find people if you're not looking?
0: Yeah, so, I mean, I think like your first best bet, I mean, you know, in terms of online communities, the, the first one I would recommend is the Luckiest Club. That's the one that um, I work with. We run meetings. We have about 60 meetings a week. Um, I would absolutely recommend that they have a free seven day trial. Um, I recently finished working at the reframe app. The reframe app is good for folks who are also considering moderating, even though it does not work for me, it works for some folks. Um, so the reframe app does support people who are quitting and people who are moderating. Um, you also have smart recovery. Um, I believe they have online meetings as well. Um, if you are a woman, she recovers also is another option for women, um, if you are an African-American woman, the sober black girls club is a great option. So for women of color, um, that is an option there. They are also now hosting meetings for men. So I believe they also have like, um, an option for men there. Um, so yeah, I would say those are really good communities. And then in terms of say like online, like, yeah, if you use Instagram, if you don't want to use your personal Instagram, you know, you can create like a little anonymous one Mm -hmm. just for Following a bunch of sobriety accounts. And I mean, just hit those hashtags, you know, hashtag sober, hashtag sobriety, hashtag sober women, you know, hashtag sober women of color, you know, whatever you want to look for. And you would be able to find find folks that way as well. Awesome. I've been doing a lot of work with
1: uh, the Sobertown podcast, and they um, they've got a great website. They do a lot of work with Erica Spiegelman. She does uh, rewired. And um, I've also been working with Ola Sober, which they have an Ola Sober for men as well. Uh, and what do you think about this is my other little question here. What do you think about like a tracker? Um, I started on the, I am sober, like it's like a tracker on your phone and then you can, you know, count your days and then you, they have a community there. And I think there's what sober buddy, they kind of count days. Did you count your days in the beginning or.
0: I let the app do it for me. Okay, <laughs> so, You know, I mean, I have a couple apps that keep track of like, you know, my sobriety date that I've just put in there. And on occasion I'll like open up the app and be like, oh, it's been this much time. Yeah. You know, I definitely, I pay attention to my anniversary. And at this point, that's really all I pay attention to. Um, I I kept an eye out for my 1000 days because- um, Comic club. Club, Yeah, the comic club. So I did pay attention to when that came. And then, yeah, I really just pay attention to the anniversaries. And after that, it's just a day at a time, really. So I I, I would not be able to tell you how many days I have right now, like off the top of my head. I can't tell you. I would have to look it up. Well, can you look
1: it up and tell us? No. Um, (laughs) What about- um, Do you did you give yourself little gifts as you reached milestones or do you celebrate on your anniversaries or I know you said you don't moderate? What do you think about people who do moderate? I mean, do you work with people who do moderate or are you kind of like, hey, you know, if you're doing a dry January, it's like, oh, I've got, you know, 10 days left and I can get hammered. You know, whereas if someone's going, hey, this isn't for the long haul, you know, um, and that's a little bit easier than doing one day at a time.
0: Yeah. So in terms of moderating, um, I do actually not recently, but I have had clients who have wanted to moderate because it's not my job to tell you what your goal is, right? right. It, okay. It the client to decide what what they're working on and what their goal is. So I have worked with a few people who have tried to moderate and I have seen some of them do better than others <laughs> and the ones who really have struggled, um, you know with them, I have said, you know, like, I think this is an opportunity to really explore being alcohol free, right? So with regard to them, Um, then in terms of your other question, I can't remember what the other question was.
1: Do you celebrate milestones? Or do you encourage that? Or like, you know, even your anniversary, like, do you buy yourself a cake? Or I don't know if you love sugar, but um, you know, do you buy yourself (laughs) gifts as you hit milestones? Like, what do you think of that?
0: So, yeah, I do celebrate my milestones, but I don't really do anything like crazy for them. I think it's more just like I make sure to always on my anniversary share, you know, I make sure to post about it and share about it, because, again, I do think it is important for that visibility for people to see, Okay, this person has not drank or has not had alcohol in this much time. And so for those reasons, I do. Um, But I mean, I don't personally like have a cake or do anything like particularly special. No.
1: Okay. Well, I, I figure, you know, that's kind of that, oh, I'm going to buy myself a present when I hit milestones. And, you know, so I'm, I'm kind of thinking, well, you know, maybe I just want to you know, there. I changed addictions right now. I'm a shopping, shopping and sugar uh, fiend over here. <laughs> but um, I think I know we've got to wrap soon Um, because, and I probably just hit you with more questions than you can tolerate for today. Um, What else? Just wait to when, as I wake up at three in the morning, like, oh my gosh, I should have asked Jessica that one.
0: It's funny. Yeah. I mean, I don't really have anything else just off the top of my head. I mean, I think the topic of forgiveness is a really important one for folks to really reflect on, whether it's for themselves or for other people. Um, and again, there, there is no one right or wrong way to do it. Like you have to decide that you are doing it how it feels right for, for you. And that that's the end of it. You know, other people can insert their opinions and it's up to you to, you can listen to them or you cannot. I find life a lot more peaceful when I'm not like letting myself be flooded by other people's opinions and just following what feels right for me.
1: I love that. And I really like the idea that, you know, I can forgive you, but that doesn't mean I have to let you back in my life. Yeah. You know, and just kind of coming to terms with, what you need and what's best for your recovery. Um, I think that's amazing. Yeah. Well, thank you for all these tidbits. I'll, I'll get the shirts made for you for, uh, (laughs) (laughs) um, but it's been awesome. And I so appreciate just letting me get your knowledge and, um, I know you're doing amazing things and you don't, you don't need me to stroke you and how incredible you are, but your brilliance is touching a lot of people. So, um, I really appreciate
0: you taking the time to chat with me today. Thank you, Dana. That that means a lot. So it was it was my pleasure. Thank you so, so much. Hey, if you are enjoying what you are listening to, I invite you to subscribe and share the podcast, but also go to my website, bottomless2sober.com and find out other opportunities to work with me from free workshops to writing classes to one-to-one life coaching opportunities. You can schedule a free consultation for that. Everything is available at bottomless2sober.com. See you then.